delight to now ask our speaker if he's not uh, too worn out from the drive we had this afternoon. Feel as though we should have covered about four states in the amount of time that we spent in traffic today, and we covered half of the city only. Um, <laughs> but I got the whole Chicago experience that way. <laughs> but I did bring him up Grand Avenue and explain that it's one of was one of the oldest trails. Uh, in the area, pointing out multiple things on the west side of Chicago for him to see along the way, as well as in Elmwood Park, River Grove, Franklin Park, and Bensonville. I didn't miss anything on the way for him um, to provide him with that information. Um, our speaker comes uh, originally is from the Philadelphia area, as I learned, and so he splits his time rooting for both Philadelphia teams as well as some of the teams in Ohio. Um, currently lives in Columbus, where he practices law there, but he's involved in the Civil War Roundtable there, as well as the program uh, chairman for the Chambersburg uh, Civil Study War Civil War Seminar. Sorry. Um, and I think we're all familiar with uh, numerous wonderful works of his. And so, Mr. Eric Wittenberg. Thank you, John. So before I begin, just a quick comment. Um, well, it's either going to be me or the slides. It can't be both. So okay, it's lined up so we can see you and the slides both. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is why stand to one side, go to one side of the screen. You should be okay. All right. Which is a challenge for me because I'm a litigator and I spend my time pacing in front of juries. So standing still for the next hour plus is going to be a challenge. So. Bear with me. Anyway, one of the things that I wanted to address here is, um, hang on just a second, because I think we've got, Bruce, can you come up here for just a second? Oh, no, it's not there. Never mind. Um, I wanted to give you just a brief glimpse of where this project came from, because it, it sits at the intersection of the two most important things in my life, the law and history. And my co-author is the United States District Court Judge for the Southern District of Ohio named Ed Sargis. Ed grew up just across the river from Wheeling, West Virginia, in St. Clairsville, Ohio. And Ed's wife, who was a retired common pleas judge from the county they lived in, spent the early part of her career practicing law in Wheeling. So the Sargis's have a great deal of interest in the events that led to the creation of the state of West Virginia. And when Ed and I started talking, we said to ourselves, this would make a really interesting book project. So this is where this comes from. It's going to be a hybrid. It's going to talk about both law as well as history. And the, the conversation will start with the Commonwealth of Virginia. The conversation will begin with the Commonwealth of Virginia. This is what the Commonwealth of Virginia looked like before the Civil War. You had the Tidewater region, you had the South Side, and you had the Northwestern counties. But what do you note when you look at this map? Do you notice that there's almost a straight line that goes right down here? That straight line is pretty close to this, what is today the dividing line between Virginia and West Virginia. 
that straight line represents the Allegheny Mountain chain, which is a physical divider between the eastern two-thirds of the Commonwealth and the west northwestern one-third of the Commonwealth. It's almost like a physical barrier because the, the, the culture on both sides is very different. Down here, English settlers, all of English descent, many of them end up being the first families of Virginia. <clears throat> if you've ever been to, as a, and the best example I can give you is John King Carter's plantation on the James River. This just spectacular plantation house. The people up here tended to be Scots-Irish and German immigrants. So there were real cultural differences. Here, the economy was largely agricultural, largely depended on large plantations, which also depended largely on having slave labor. The Northwestern counties, by contrast, up here, the ground is very mountainous. It's hilly when it's not mountainous. The ground is rocky. It is not particularly fertile, certainly not like what you have in the Tidewater region. You don't have these big plantations. <clears throat> you had very few slave owners in the Northwestern counties. So that's a big difference. And in 1850, there was a constitutional convention called in Richmond to redraft the state constitution. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that constitution was slanted very much in favor of the slaveholders. It created a different system of taxing people. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> We've had a wet year in Columbus <clears throat> and my fall hay fever allergies are really bad this year, so please bear with me. Anyway, the slave owners in the eastern part of the state received very favorable tax treatment based on their slave ownership. Whereas the people, the yeoman farmers and the laborers and the coal miners who lived in the northwestern counties got to make up that difference. And as you might imagine, they were extremely resentful. <laughs> we'll come back to that in just a moment. Other things to note. The main route of commerce, the Potomac River, Chesapeake Bay, the Atlantic Ocean. All the commerce in this part of Virginia was focused on the Eastern seaboard. Whereas, what do you notice on this map? These counties, what's their main route of commerce? Well, it's that right there, the Ohio River. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Yeah, putting it in front of the, the lens is not a great thing. <laughs> it is, if you're in Wheeling, Wheeling is right about here, right about where that red dot is. If you're in Wheeling, you are 350 miles from Richmond. You are 60 miles from Pittsburgh. So not surprisingly, the people who lived in these northwestern counties tended to gravitate toward, yeah, gravitate toward western Maryland, Pennsylvania, and not surprisingly, Ohio. Most of their business was done with those states. Very little of their business was done here. It was inevitable that there was going to be a split. 
There is no question there was going to be a split. The, the only question was not if, but rather when. And in 1850, after the new constitution was drafted, the great orator, Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts came and gave a speech. And in that speech, he very clearly predicted the split between the Eastern two thirds and Northwestern third of Virginia. And he even referred to this new area as West Virginia. It was coming, friends. Just when was the question? Well, the question was answered because the catalyst became the coming of the Civil War. And specifically, it came with the election of this man, John Letcher. That's a name that's familiar to you, Dave. He was from, from Lexington, Virginia. And John Letcher was most assuredly a, an ardent secessionist. So much so that the day he was sworn in as governor of Virginia in 1861, he immediately called a special session of the legislature for the purpose of entertaining an ordinance of secession. He was already putting in motion aligning Virginia with the Confederacy. He was already in discussions with the, these, this new provisional Confederate government to give Virginia's troops over to the Confederacy. He was determined to leave Virginia out of the Union. So they call this special session and it passes an ordinance of secession, which means that now they're going to call a convention that will be held in Richmond for the purpose of passing that. And then if it passes the convention, then it gets put to a referendum of the voters of the Commonwealth. So at that first, the first sessions of the secession convention in Richmond, the, the movement towards secession wasn't going well. There was enough interest in remaining part of the union that Letcher and his allies were getting frustrated. And let me show you who one of his main allies was. This man, John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, a man who swore an oath to defend and protect and uphold the Constitution of the United States. And what is he doing? He's trying to lead Virginia out of the Union. Loudly arguing for secession. Things weren't going well, though. And they didn't go well until the South Carolinians opened fire on Fort Sumter in April. Of course, we all know that what happened then was that Lincoln put out a call for 75,000 volunteers, and that's when the tide shifted. That's when momentum began to build to get this ordinance of secession passed by the convention in order to lead Virginia out of the Union. This is Henry Wise, who was Letcher's predecessor as governor of Virginia. Henry Wise was the one who presided over the execution of John Brown, as an example. And he was a thunderous advocate of secession. And one day he was asked, in, in late April, he was asked to address the convention. And he strode up to the podium and laid a loaded gun on the podium in front of him. And started whipping the crowd into a frenzy over the idea of secession. And finally, he came to a vote. And the convention voted to approve the ordinance of secession. And John Tyler was seen sobbing with tears of joy over his leading Virginia out of the union. 
But there's a problem. And the problem is the representatives, the delegates of the, the Northwestern counties that make up West Virginia today were vehemently opposed to secession. They were strongly in favor of remaining in the union. They made it very clear that if this ordinance of secession passed and Virginia, in fact, did secede, they were not going to go with. So there was going to be a referendum put to the voters <clears throat> of the entire Commonwealth of Virginia at the end of May to approve the ordinance of secession. So this is Archibald Campbell. This photograph was taken late in life. In 1861, Arch Campbell was all of 24 years old. He was already the owner, editor, and publisher of the Wheeling Intelligencer newspaper. And we're lucky because the entire run of the Wheeling Intelligencer has been not only preserved, but it's been uh, digitized, and it's all available on the Library of Congress's website for free. So you can go and read this stuff as much as you like. We quoted from it extensively when we were writing the book. Arch Campbell was one of the leaders of this movement to keep those Northwestern counties not only loyal to the Union, but to secede from Virginia. That's what it took to stay loyal to the Union. And having the bully pulpit of a newspaper, he used it regularly. So the decision is made that they're going to hold a convention in Wheeling at the United States Customs House for the purpose of discussing what to do. So the Wheeling Convention was called for May 11th, if I remember the date correctly, of 1861. And it convened, and among the, the notable players, John Carlisle, who was the earliest advocate for statehood, I'll come back to him in a minute, Waitman Willie, another early advocate of statehood, Carlisle, as early as the May Convention, put on the floor a resolution to secede from Virginia and create a new state. And there was much debate over it. And the debate came to the conclusion, well, Virginia hasn't seceded from the Union yet because they haven't had the referendum. So this is premature. We shouldn't be having this conversation yet. So the decision is made that they're going to end the convention. They're going to wait and see what the outcome of the referendum is. And if the referendum passes, they're going to convene again the next month. The referendum passed. Roughly two-thirds to one-third. Guess how that vote broke out. <laughs> so Virginia seceded from the Union. And in June, the second Wheeling Convention was called. And the second Wheeling Convention it's going to accomplish two important things. The first thing it's going to do is it's going to establish what it called the restored government of Virginia, placing this man, a railroad lawyer from Morgantown of Virginia, now West Virginia, Francis Harrison Pierpont, was appointed the governor of the restored government of Virginia. The convention declared that all of the elected office holders of the Commonwealth of Virginia who helped lead Virginia out of the Union. That included the two United States Senators. It included all the congressional representatives but one. It included Governor Letcher and everybody else had abandoned their offices. They had breached their oaths of loyalty 
to the Constitution. They therefore were thrown out of office symbolically, primarily, by this convention. And they installed Francis Harrison Pierpont and a few others in the same elected positions and declare them to be the legitimate government of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Waitman Willie and John Carlisle are appointed the United States Senators for Virginia and take office. Well, of course, there's a functioning legitimate de jure government in Richmond. The Richmond government, of course, doesn't recognize any of this, but the Lincoln administration immediately recognized the validity of the restored government of Virginia and declared Pierpont to be the governor of the entire Commonwealth. So he sets up his offices in Wheeling. That's the first thing that it does. The second thing that the Wheeling Convention does is it decides and passes a resolution to secede from Virginia and create a new state. Now, this is going to be a problem. We'll come back to that. This is John Garrett. Who knows who John Garrett was? <laughs> Go ahead, Rob. President of the Baltimore Ohio Railroad. That's correct. Yeah, that's I didn't know that before that, but he's, he's a, one of the big shots. John Garrett was a, a Baltimore native. He was born and raised in Maryland. He was, and despite his southern roots, was a staunch unionist. He was the president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He performed some extraordinary service for the United States government through the course of the war. And in fact, it was his extremely detailed, extremely accurate intelligence reports during Jubal Early's invasion of 1864 were so good that he got the thanks of Congress for it. So John Garrett is a very important player that many people have never heard of because he's not a politician, he's not a general, in the Union victory. Why? Because of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. This is what it looked like in the 1860s. It began in Baltimore. It went through Harper's Ferry, went from Harper's Ferry to Cumberland, Maryland, to Grafton, and then it turns and comes north up through Martinsburg and comes to Wheeling. It then crosses the river into Ohio at Belair, to Zanesville, to Newark, to Columbus, to north of Cincinnati and Xenia, and then over to Indianapolis and on up to its ultimate termination point in Chicago. The B&O was the critical supply line for the Union's war efforts in the Eastern Theater. Men, material, supplies, you name it, it was how things got to the Eastern Theater to fight and to support the armies in the field. So you'll note that the B&O, more or less, it's not completely, but it's pretty close, tracks the route of the Potomac River. That means that it's going to pass through areas that are extremely sympathetic to the Confederacy and to the Confederate cause. This in turn meant that almost from day one, the BO was under constant attack by Confederate soldiers. And it took a real serious effort to keep that railroad open and functioning. So much so that a fellow by the name of Brigadier General Benjamin Franklin Kelly was sent to take command of a 10,000-man division whose sole purpose was to defend the B&O Railroad. And it, in fact, became known as the Railroad Division. 
What does that mean? It means that there are some parts, and in particular, right here, who are basically military occupation. The people in two counties that we'll get to in just a moment voted to secede. But the BNO passed right through those two counties, as did the National Road, as did the, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. That can't happen. The two counties, Jefferson County and Berkeley County. Harper's Ferry is here. County seat is Charlestown. Then you have Berkeley County, the county seat of which is Martinsburg. The BNO crosses the, river, the uh, Potomac River at Harper's Ferry and goes right along this route to Martinsburg and then on up to Wheeling. The voters of these two counties voted to secede. So they basically were occupied by the United States Army for the balance of the war. And when the various elections that we're going to talk about momentarily about the creation of West Virginia were held, these people were not permitted to vote. They were denied the right to vote. Now remember that because that is going to play a very important role as we get to the end of this story. This is John Bingham, who was a, okay, so we're missing a slide. Let me, let me take a minute and talk to you before I do this, just about the constitutional mechanism. Article four, section three of the United States Constitution provides that a new state can be split off of an existing state, provided that the legislatures of the two states agree and approve, and that the United States Congress then approves. Okay, this had happened three times previously. First was when Kentucky was split off of Virginia with the consent of the Virginia legislature. The second time was the creation of the state of Vermont, which was split off of New York, again with the consent of the New York legislature. And finally, the creation of Maine, which was split off of Massachusetts in 1820. And unfortunately, the fate of the state of Maine got hung up in the debates over free versus slave states and admitting them to the Union. And in fact, the state of Maine was not admitted to the Union until the Missouri Compromise was hammered out and Maine was admitted as a free state as part of the Missouri Compromise. So there, there were three historic precedents for doing but do you see what the problem is we have here? We have the same people consenting to both sides of the equation. <laughs> this, my friends, is a big constitutional problem. <laughs> anyway, referendum is held in, in these northwestern counties to secede from Virginia. They then convene a convention in Wheeling to draft a new state constitution for this new state. It passes a referendum. Again, the people in Jefferson and Berkeley County don't get to vote on any of this. But then there's a bill introduced in the United States House of Representatives by this man, John Bingham, who represented the Southeastern District of Ohio uh, just across the river from Wheeling. Bingham was a radical Republican. He was an ardent abolitionist. He was a strong advocate for keeping 
the Union cause in Northwestern Virginia alive, not just for political reasons, but for economic reasons, because his areas, much of his area's economic well-being depended on doing business across the Ohio River. So the bill gets introduced, and there's a great deal of debate in the House of Representatives. This is Thaddeus Stevens, a lawyer from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, those of you who saw Mr. Spielberg's Lincoln movie, he was played very ably by Tommy Lee Jones. Thaddeus Stevens was one of the founders of the radical Republican wing of the party. Again, an ardent abolitionist. And Thaddeus Stevens was also a Machiavellian. What do I mean by that? He very much took the position that the ends justified the means. It didn't matter whether this was unconstitutional to Stevens. All that mattered was adding another free state to the union. The ends justified the means. And after a great deal of debate in the United States House, the legislation ultimately passed and it went to the Senate, as it typically does. This is Charles Sumner in Massachusetts. Some of you are undoubtedly aware that in 1857, or 1858, I forget the exact year, Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina attacked Charles Sumner on the floor of the United States Senate and very nearly beat him to death. Sumner recovered and resumed his seat in the Senate. And Sumner was, of course, one of the leaders of the radical wing of the Republican Party in the Senate. Probably the most vehement, loud abolitionist of all of them. And when the bill came up for consideration, Charles Sumner said, it ain't happening. There are slaves in West Virginia, and we are not admitting another slave state into the Union, period. That brought the conversation to a screeching halt. Now, remember John Carlisle? John Carlisle, who had been the first advocate for statehood in West Virginia, decided at some point, probably because of this abolition question, that maybe having a new state wasn't such a good idea. And he took a 180 degree turn and went from being the earliest and most ardent advocate of statehood to being loudly and vehemently opposed to it and throwing up every roadblock to the legislation he could think of to throw up. Not surprisingly, this caused lots of hue and cry back home, demands for his resignation, which he steadfastly refused to do. Well, the bill was in real trouble. And Waitman Willie, the other senator from Virginia, came up with a plan. They call it the Willie Compromise, not surprisingly. The Willie Compromise was that any slaves born after the effective date of the bill, or any, any children born of slaves after the effective date of the bill, would automatically be free and there would be gradual emancipation of those who were indeed held in bondage. There'd be a period of time, but they would eventually be free. Well, this satisfied Charles Sumner. He was good with that. So the bill, he, he take, took down the barricade and the bill, after debate, passed the, the Senate the first week in December of 1862. So not surprisingly, following the way things go, the bill was carried to the White House by Senator Orville Browning, a Republican senator from this very state, who was a friend of Abraham Lincoln's, and personally delivered it to Lincoln. And Lincoln, as we all know, is a pretty fair lawyer in his own right. 
And he was really disturbed by the constitutional issue that I've raised with him. It really bothered him. It bothered him so much that he decided he was going to pull his cabinet. And he's going to ask the members of his cabinet to provide him with their written opinions on two questions. One, is the legislation constitutional? And two, is it politically expedient? Now, in those days, there were seven cabinet offices. However, Caleb Smith, the Secretary of the Interior, had very recently resigned his office because he had accepted an appointment to become a federal district judge in Indiana. So the seat of Secretary of the Interior was open. This means there are six people to vote. How do you think that vote came out? <laughs> Just as you think, three to three, which prompted a thoroughly disgusted Abraham Lincoln to ask, why do I even have a cabinet? So this is how the vote broke out. This is William Henry Seward, the Secretary of State, well-known lawyer from New York, was one of the candidates to be the initial Republican nominee in 1856, also was a candidate in 1860. Lincoln brought him into the cabinet. Seward voted constitutional and expedient. Joining him, Salmon Portland Chase of Cincinnati, Ohio, the Secretary of the Treasury. Chase, one of the founders of the Radical Republicans, an ardent abolitionist, and a big pain in the ass to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he would constantly carp and constantly whine and constantly threaten to resign if he didn't get his way. So Chase is in many ways the one I think who Doris Kearns Goodwin had in mind when she decided to tackle what she called her team of rivals under the theory that Lincoln was better to have him inside than outside. Or to, to allow me to be crude for just a second, I'll borrow a line from Lyndon Baines Johnson. Rather have him inside pissing out than in, outside pissing in. <laughs> Second vote. Here's the third vote. Edwin McMaster Stanton, Steubenville, Ohio. Currently the Secretary of War, one of the best known lawyers in the United States. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Daniel Sickles murder trial of 1859. Stanton was the head of what was the 1859 version of, of Sickles' legal, legal dream team. And as soon as Sickles was acquitted, James Buchanan appointed him the Attorney General of the United States for the last three months of the Buchanan administration. He then becomes the Secretary of War. And interestingly enough, of the six opinions, his is the shortest one. So those are the three in favor. Against, Gideon Wells, Secretary of the Navy, who Lincoln called Father Neptune. <laughs> Father Neptune was really troubled by the constitutional question. Joining him, Montgomery Blair, the Postmaster General. Who haven't we seen? Who's missing? That's right. Edward Bates, Attorney General. First cabinet officer from the Trans-Mississippi ever appointed. From the minute that the legislation was introduced in the House, 
Edward Bates told anybody who was willing to listen to him, it was unconstitutional. And he wrote a, a very convincing brief on these questions as to why. So the cabinet split three to three. Not surprisingly, Lincoln cast the deciding vote. Now, while all this is going on, Lincoln is being lobbied very hard by people from Wheeling. Arch Campbell comes to see him. Campbell's running articles in his newspaper. Waitman Willie comes to see him. Pierpont comes to see him. They persuade Lincoln that if he vetoes the legislation, that will be the end of the Unionist cause in the northwestern counties of West Virginia. So when he hears this, he adopts the, the position that the ends justify the means. This isn't an exact quote, but it's pretty close. He writes in his decision that while secession is never something to be desired, if we have to have secession, I would rather be in favor of the Constitution than against it. I therefore find the bill to be constitutional and I find it to be politically expedient. And on December 31st, 1862, he signed the legislation. But now we got a problem. Remember the Willie Amendment, the compromise? They've now got to amend the state constitution to adopt the Willie Compromise. So that means they've got to convene another constitutional convention in Wheeling, which they do, which immediately passes it. And now it's got to be set for a referendum approved by the voters, of which Jefferson and Berkeley County don't get to vote. So what the bill says is that 60 days after the referendum to approve a revised constitution, assuming it passes, West Virginia will join the union. So that referendum was held on April the 20th, 1863. 60 days later is June 20th. And on June 20th, 1863, Arthur Borman, a prominent railroad lawyer, was sworn in as the first governor of the state of West Virginia. Well, suddenly there's now any, no reason to have the restored government of Virginia operating in Wheeling because it's not part of Virginia. It's a new state. So Pierpont has to pack up his rough government and move it to Alexandria where he sets up. Waitman Willie, John Carlisle remain senators for the restored government until Carlisle's finally gotten rid of down the road. And now we've got to go about building a state. We've got to establish the, the mechanisms of government. We've got to create the bureaucratic entities that every state requires to operate, one of which is a judicial system. Well, there were county courts of common pleas. No reason to change any of that. Those can go forward, just have to have a new name. No Supreme Court, though. It's got to be a court of last resort, right? So it's wartime. Where are we going to get a law library? Well, the Supreme Court of Virginia used to meet for the month of June every year in Lewisburg, West Virginia, or what's today West Virginia, Greenbrier County, which is, as the crow flies, 
about 14 miles from White Sulphur Springs and the famous resort there. So because the Supreme Court of Virginia used to meet in Lewisburg, there was a full law library there. Well, when that became known, something happened that I dare say is the one and only time in all of military history that a military expedition was mounted to obtain law books. <laughs> so that makes it of interest to me. A task force of Union cavalry commanded by Brigadier General William Woods April goes on an expedition specifically to go seize that law library in Lewisburg and bring it back to Wheeling. Well, the Confederates catch wind of this cavalry raid and alert a significant force of infantry, about 2,200 men, normally commanded by Brigadier, John, Brigadier General John Eccles, who is now down in Richmond, uh, participating in the court of inquiry over the fall of, of Vicksburg, leaving the senior colonel of the brigade, the commander of the 22nd Virginia Infantry, followed by the name of George S. Patton, a VMI grad, in charge of the brigade. And Patton gets his command across Averill's line of march, a couple of miles east of the White Hotel at White Sulphur Springs, and in a very harsh, grinding two-day battle, defeats Averill, who has to withdraw and leave behind the law books. Of course, the Confederate government, having figured out what this was all about, immediately had that library packed up and taken back to Richmond. So they've got a now created law, a Supreme Court for the state of West Virginia that doesn't have a law library. Isn't that interesting? So in any event, they, they've got to go about creating all the arms of government. This is the Lastly Institute, which was a, girl, a girls' school located in Wheeling that was the original state capital. And it will remain the state capital until after the war when they pick up this, the entire seat of government and move it to Charleston, where it is today. So come the end of the Civil War in the East, the fall of Richmond, the beginning of April, the surrender of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox on the 9th of April. This is what Richmond looked like. It was a wreck. It had not been treated kindly by the retreating Confederates, nor by the victorious Union. Lincoln's assassinated, and the hard hand of Reconstruction comes to the South. As part of the fall of the Confederacy, who do you suppose actually now became the real, honest to goodness governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia? You guessed it, Francis Harrison Pierpont, placed in, in the office of governor by the military authorities. Now he's got a general assembly that is filled with ex-Confederates who are hopping mad over the dismemberment of Virginia and even more hopping mad at Pierpont for the role he played in it. It's a hostile situation, and Pierpont's trying to figure out a way to, to, to win these guys over and legitimize his, uh, his governorship. So what does he do? He comes up with a plan. And the plan is, they're going to send a delegation to Wheeling to try and convince Wheeling the Wheeling government and the, this, the counties of West Virginia to return to the, the Commonwealth. That went over about as well as a lead balloon, rejected immediately out of hand, 
So now he's got to fall back to plan B. And now it's time for another quick lesson in constitutional law. The Supreme Court of the United States is by Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, the court of last resort. It is the court that is supposed to be an appellate court to review the decisions of courts below. There's two ways to get a case, an appeal to the Supreme Court. One is by uh, is an appeal of right. That's some statute provides for an appeal directly to the Supreme Court. Or the justices can determine that a case has great constitutional value and vote, and if four of them vote, they can they'll take the case. That's how appellate cases get to the Supreme Court. But what people also don't know is that there are a limited number of cases in which the Supreme Court of the United States has what's called original jurisdiction. That means that it decides the case as the trier of fact. And then there is nowhere to appeal. One of the main areas where the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction is in boundary disputes between states. So as an example, if there's a dispute over where the precise boundary between Maryland and Pennsylvania was, which there was, it went to the Supreme Court of the United States to make a decision. So Pierpont comes up with a pretty smart idea. Pierpont decides in 1866 that he's going to commence an action in the Supreme Court seeking to have Berkeley and Jefferson counties returned to the Commonwealth of Virginia. Why? Because they weren't permitted to vote in any of the referendum. He figures these ex-Confederates will fall in line, they'll support him, and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Andrew Johnson, now President of the United States, I'm sure many of you are aware, Johnson was a Democrat. It's the only time uh, since, and really in the, the, the all of American history, and certainly since the Constitution was changed after the second presidency, where you had a, a ticket where the president was of one party and the vice president was of another. Johnson was not only a Democrat, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, and he's got to deal with this angry hornet's nest of radical Republicans who are livid over the assassination of Lincoln and determined to take out their anger on the South. They also don't trust Andrew Johnson. So when a couple of vacancies come along in the Supreme Court, what do they do? They pass a bill, reducing the number of justices from nine to seven. Why? So Johnson can't appoint anybody. Not surprisingly, Johnson vetoes the legislation, they override the veto and it becomes law. Johnson, of course, is impeached. He survives the impeachment trial by a single vote and leaves office as an angry, bitter man in 1869 when Ulysses Grant takes office. What do the Republicans do in Congress? They immediately repeal the bill, reducing the number of justices from nine to seven, restore it to nine, and Grant is able to appoint two, justice, two justices to the court. So the first issue, though, that's gotta be decided by Pierpont, 
is who's going to represent the Commonwealth of Virginia? Well, this is Senator Reverdy Johnson of Maryland. Johnson was one of the great constitutional scholars in the United States. He had argued the Dred Scott case before the Supreme Court. He had, among other things, uh, served as defense counsel for in the Lincoln conspirators trial. He was an extremely well-respected guy. And Pierpont came to him and said, we'd like you to represent the Commonwealth of Virginia. Democratic Senator. What do you think Johnson said? No, thank you. He signs up to represent West Virginia instead. He's got with him as his co-counsel, this man, Charles Faulkner of Martinsburg, Virginia. Charles Faulkner was a Confederate officer during the war. He refused to sign the oath of loyalty, so they wouldn't give him his law license back. It took an act of the legislature to restore his law license. <clears throat> so who do you have representing West Virginia? A Democratic senator from Maryland and a Confederate officer. They're going to be the ones handling this case for West Virginia. So Pierpont's got to find somebody. And this is who he finds. This is Benjamin Robbins Curtis of Massachusetts. Benjamin Curtis had been an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He was so thoroughly disgusted by the Dred Scott decision that he resigned his seat on the court and returned to Massachusetts and went back to practicing law. Again, one of the great eminent constitutional scholars in the country, he's the one that's gonna sign on to represent the Commonwealth of Virginia, along with the 31-year-old Nobody who nobody ever has ever heard of, who was the uh, Attorney General of the, the Restored Government of Virginia, and they're going to argue the case. Now we've got one more thing we've got to worry about here. In the spring of 1864, Lincoln had finally had enough of Salmon Chase. And when he tendered one of his threats to resign, Lincoln said, accept it. So Chase left the cabinet. And he's out there making trouble, even threatening to run against Lincoln. In October of 1864, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger B. Tommy of Maryland, died. So who do you suppose Lincoln appointed to be Chief Justice? You guessed it, Salmon Portland Chase. So this case is now before the, Chief, the Supreme Court of the United States. You got Chase, who was an active participant in these events, who's now the Chief Justice. You think he recused himself? Uh -uh. So when the case first comes to the court, there's a real question. The constitutional provision that creates this original jurisdiction says that it has to be a dispute between the states. Virginia hadn't been restored to the Union yet. It was still under reconstruction. So the thing got shelved. In 1871, after Virginia was finally readmitted to the Union, the case came up. This is the Supreme Court that decided the case. The two justices who were appointed by Ulysses Grant are these two at this end of the room, Samuel Freeman Miller and Stephen Johnson Field. There's Chase in the middle, the two senior justices on either side of it. And it was Samuel Freeman Miller who wrote the opinion of the court, which dismissed the complaint. 
finding there had been no problems, that everything was constitutional, that Berkeley and Jefferson counties were properly a part of the state of West Virginia, and that they should remain as such. And that finally ended the question. Not long after Pierpont was removed from office, a real governor was appointed and eventually someone was elected and things went on. In 1911, another lawsuit was brought by Virginia against West Virginia in the Supreme Court. This, the purpose of which was to allocate who was going, which state was gonna pay for infrastructure that was now in West Virginia. The Virginians quite reasonably didn't think they should pay for those things. And it went to the Supreme Court. And in an otherwise unremarkable decision by Wendell, Oliver Wendell Holmes, it came out in late 1911, ultimately found that West Virginia should pay for those improvements. What's important about it is, in that decision, Holmes, who of course is a Civil War veteran, written what, 55, 56 years after the creation of the state, acts as if it was never a question. You read that opinion, it makes it sound like everything was ordinary and normal, there was never any question. It's remarkable. So you would think that that would have ended the discussion, but it didn't. We'll come back to that. This is a monument to Francis Harrison Pierpont that stands outside West Virginia Independence Hall, which was the Customs House, it's still there. What does it say? It says the father of West Virginia. This is a man who never held an elective office in the state of West Virginia. But he's the one that's got the monument. It's interesting. I took that photo myself. You can go see it if you ever pass through Wheeling. It's worth a visit. So is the museum in West Virginia Independence Hall, by the way. So you would think that with the Supreme Court decisions, we would have come to the end of all of this. But there's, a, there's an epilogue to the story. There is a Republican state legislator in West Virginia by the name of Charles Trump. No, he's not related. I asked him that question directly. Not related. Charles Trump was so fascinated by this story that he had come upon on his own, because all this transpired before the book was published, that he introduced a resolution in the West Virginia legislature. What was the resolution? Frederick County, Virginia, which is the county of which Winchester is the county seat, immediately adjacent to Berkeley County, was supposed to participate in the original referenda to leave Virginia and come with West Virginia. So what's Trump's resolution? Let's invite Frederick County to hold a referendum and come join us in West Virginia. It passes the legislature. This is 2019, people. <laughs> The resolution is delivered to the county supervisors in Frederick County who say that's very nice, thanks, but no thanks, we're fine where we are. He reintroduced it again this year. So if you think these questions are settled, they're not. You constantly hear Texas wants to secede. Let them go, who cares? <laughs> 
Parts of California want to secede and create in their own state. Parts of uh, Oregon want to join Idaho. It's all a lot of hooey. It's never going to happen. Where if it does, there's going to be another war. Unless it's Texas, in which case, who cares? <laughs> Let them go. The point being that our forefathers, the founding fathers of this country, didn't do us any favors because they never addressed the question of secession in the Constitution. The word doesn't appear anywhere. And trust me, I've gone through it to find two home. Judge Sargis and I are now tackling the question of legality of secession. So I've been working on this for the last year, and I can tell you there's not a word about it in the Constitution. So if you think these questions are settled, they're not. If you think that these issues are going to go away, they're not. But it's fascinating to see this, how this all played out, and the politics and the machinations, and how really the law was completely disregarded with the creation of West Virginia because the ends justified the means. And with that, I'll take your questions. The primary one of which was uh, accepting and adopting the 13th, 14th, and 15th right. Amendments. Could not West Virginia have been, could not West Virginia have been carved out of Virginia, utilizing the military necessity argument, and then when the war was ultimately over, give a legitimate vote to those West Virginia folks uh, before Virginia was permitted back into the states because the conditions had not met. And that would potentially have perhaps cured a blank unconstitutional action. Sure would, but they were too busy living in the here and now. And it was too important to them to maintain that unionist sentiment and encourage it and bolster it because let's remember, West Virginia ended up contributing 14 infantry regiments, five cavalry regiments, several batteries of artillery to the Union Army. So, so really establishing the status quo of West Virginia is participating on the Union side would not have been sufficient in your estimation? Apparently not. Sir? Yes. What, was there any debate about the naming of the state? There was. And, and thank you for bringing that up. Uh, originally, there was discussion about what the state was going to be called. The original suggested name was it was going to be called the State of Kanawha. The Kanawha River goes through Charleston and is a tributary of the Ohio River. It's also extremely hard to pronounce. <laughs> because it looks like it should be Kanawha. And ultimately that was rejected. And there were a couple other names that were batted around. And ultimately they decided that West Virginia was simple and that's what it was going to be. 
but the original name was going to be the state of Kanawha. Nobody could pronounce it though. You can if you're from West Virginia. You can if you're from West Virginia, or you've been taught how to say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have another question too. This is somewhat bizarre. There is a program on how to say capital shapes. I guess I watched that. But the shape of the original Virginia was always intriguing. You know, with that panhandle. Well, keep in mind that they also included Kentucky and part of Tennessee too. Well, yeah, that part, you know, she was saying the city, you know, Massachusetts and other states always had those claims, Georgia. But, but, but that little, you know, that little, with, how did they score away those borders there? I understand Mason Dixon, but the western border of Pennsylvania, we saw through that panhandle part of, of West Virginia, now West Virginia. I, I haven't had the foggiest idea, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> it's a weird shape. It is a weird shape. But I will tell you that the, the shape of West Virginia is defined by the fact that it's 88 counties, and that's the, the shape of the 88 counties. Go ahead. Was Borman, yes. was he elected or appointed? No, he was elected. He was actually elected by the by the voters of West Virginia and was a legitimate first governor of the, of the legitimate government of West Virginia, assuming that it was legitimate. But he was elected by the voters. Right, Bruce. Uh, did the Berkeley and Jefferson County voters, were they allowed to vote for the governor's race? I don't believe they were. I don't think they were allowed to vote in anything until after the end of the war. So doesn't that raise a question about the legitimacy of the democracy of West Virginia? Well, of course it does. Related <laughs> <laughs> uh, question. But the whole thing is questionable. I know there have been, I remember from my old legal days, hearing about lawsuits challenging the uh, ratification of several amendments of the Constitution based on the fact that West Virginia ratified them and they weren't really a state. Uh, do you ever think that's going to fly in any court? That's called lost causism. <laughs> and given the makeup, current makeup of the court, and given precedent, I think it's got about a 0% chance of prevailing. And I hope it's that's the case. That would be chaos. Go ahead. I read that uh, Southern, Southern Illinois was going to succeed from the rest of Illinois at one point. Did you run across anything about that? Not specifically because it wasn't, it wasn't something that was pertinent to the project. I know that to be the case because I know there was a lot of copperheadism in the southern part of Illinois, just as there was a great deal of copperheadism in Ohio, where I live. Um, beyond that, I haven't really studied it. It's not been germane to, to what I was doing. But I do notice that there was a lot of talk about that. Just as there was talk of the free state of Jones, as an example, part of Mississippi, seceding from Mississippi to create a union state. There was a strong block of unionists in eastern Tennessee. There were unionists in northern Alabama who wanted to break away. So this was not an unusual thing. Cameron, just, Illinois is farther south than Richmond. Yeah, well, there you go. I always thought that, uh, I always think Jefferson, you know, the concern there. I thought Martinsburg had a really substantial unionist bank team. They were upset with uh, the guys tearing up the railroad all the time. There were, but the, the, the voters of the county as a whole 
Paper. Yeah, I mean, Martinsburg was, was a critical spot on the DNO. And in fact, there is a really interesting railroad museum in Martinsburg that's dedicated to BNO to have one of the turntables. It's a cool place. Anybody else? Go ahead, John. Was the 1905 decision that uh, Justice Holmes wrote the final resolution of the funding adjustment controversy in Virginia? Don't know. Haven't looked at it. Interesting question. I'll have to go look it up. It was about that issue that you mentioned. Who pays for West Yeah, the 1911 case. So oh, certainly. Oh, is that? Okay, so that's what. Yeah, the 1911 case put it all to bed because it said, okay, West Virginia, you have the benefit of these infrastructure improvements. You should pay for them. End of case. How much do they have to pay? Don't know the amount. It's in the case if you want to read it. It's not a very interesting read. The only thing about it that's interesting is the portion where it says, talks about how everything involving the creation of the state was legitimate and hunky dory. But I don't know how much it's involved. It's, it's things like roads and, and bridges and things like that. So presumably it's a lot of money. I presume it's West Virginia versus Virginia? The other way around. Virginia versus West Virginia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That was an excellent presentation. Thank you all for joining us. And Lord willing, we will see you again in October. <laughs> Have a good night. The subject is, John, if I can make a comment, I think we all saw yesterday that the Lee statue was removed. Uh, I guess some of us have mixed feelings, others perhaps don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have our feelings about the 20th anniversary of 9 11. Uh, there will be no moment of silence for the death of the lost cause, uh, which I think is now residing in some building. In Go to the beginning. south if you think it's done. <laughs> Forget it. Uh, I don't think there'll be a moment of silence. For yeah. That. Uh, but nonetheless, I just thought I would. I know we've all seen that. Uh, but I think that the, the controversy over the lost cause uh, has taken perhaps, I don't know if, if it's the final blow, but I think that's probably just about it. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you.